We care about our land more than somebody down in Ottawa. A land code puts the First Nation into the power of government. The biggest point for me is your ability to protect your reserves lands. Former chief of our community had the vision to sign uh, and the guts to sign that framework agreement. Business at the pace of business. I think it just proves that First Nations lands management really is working. The good thing about land code, we don't have to sell it. It sells itself. And joining me now on the podcast is Chief Darcy Bear from Whitecap, Dakota, First Nation. Chief, great to have you with me. Oh, thanks, Richard. It's uh, great to join the podcast. <laughs> I have many great memories of Saskatchewan. I met my wife there and we got married up in North Battleford. So uh, I'm going down memory lane just by even having you on the show here. So it's great. Yeah, we just got through a little Arctic air here. I'm glad it's lifted now. So it's uh, uh, a lot more... Well, this was, you know, you compound that with COVID-19, it just makes for some hard living. But uh, but anyway, the, the temperature is uh, a lot better now. And, uh, but we still have to deal with this damn pandemic. And it's it's certainly changed our, the way we live and taken away a lot of our liberties and uh, the freedoms that we normally have and uh, ability to visit and, uh, you know, uh, meet one another face to face. And uh, now we got to go through this type of uh uh, to use use technology, so but I think after COVID is done, there's probably going to be uh, people are starting to realize they can do business differently now. So I've had the uh, pleasure of speaking with many chiefs across the country about your land code experience. Can you take us back in history a bit? Why White Cap Dakota went that route? Sure. Well, I think for all of our First Nations right across the country, uh, you know, sadly, uh, instead of the and the federal government, you know, creating say a treaty implementation act, they created an Indian act, and uh, that was uh, very paternalistic, and it, it made sure that from a First Nations perspective, that we were kept on reservations, and and uh, they did so purposely to you know to to keep us out of sight and out of mind, and uh, they allowed every other jurisdiction around us the opportunity to. Uh, you know, invest in their infrastructure, develop their economies, uh, you know, create employment and, uh, and also, you know, even hope. And uh, as First Nations, though, we didn't have that same opportunity. And uh, here we are, like North America once belonged to us. And uh, we're, now we're all of a sudden, we're just put on small little tracts of land called reserves. And there's a big myth out there. They claim that, you know, we own all these vast tracts of lands, but if you put all of our First Nations together across the country, and uh, we only have about one percent of the the actual land mass, and so, so it's uh, been very difficult. And I think, you know, like I was raised here in my community, of White Cap, where we're twenty minutes from from downtown Saskatoon, <clears throat> and. And we sat here for years without any kind of development at all, you know, like uh, even growing up in the community, you know, we didn't have modern infrastructure, you know, like we still had to cut wood to heat our homes and all water uh, and no, no opportunities, no jobs, no economic development activity at all. Uh, my, my grandfather, like I was raised by my grandparents and he would tell me stories when he was a young man just to leave Whitecap to, to get supplies. You had to get a pass from the Indian agent or if you want to sell livestock or sell a crop, you had to get a permit. So here we are living in a so-called free country under dictatorship rule. Uh, so, but as a, as a, you know, we got educated and, and, uh, and then I was going to the College of Commerce and a lot of my members were asking me to, to, to run in the election. So one day I said, okay, I'll run, but uh, after I lose and leave me alone. And that was back in 1991 and I've been here ever since. And so, but uh, the going down the journey a uh, couple of uh, friends of mine that uh, uh, was a uh, chief Austin Bear and chief and Robert Louis when he was a chief of West Bank and uh, they were 
they had uh, originally, there was 14 First Nations that went forward with this framework agreement on First Nation land management. And I think 13 of them ended up signing on. And it, what it is, though, is it's a sectorial self-government. It, it enables the nation to eliminate 25% of the Indian Act. Uh, it also allows for uh, <clears throat> the uh, environmental review of your lands and reclamation. So if there's any old, like any, any, uh, <clears throat> anything that uh, had to be cleaned up, like old garbage sites and things like that, there was resources provided for that. But also the, the most important thing was creating our own land code, your own set of land laws. And so for, for Whitecap, we, we certainly looked at it and we had a community meeting and we talked about the whole framework agreement for station land management and what does it mean? What would it mean for our community? And, uh, and good discussion, of course. And, uh, and, and it took us a while to eventually, you know, uh, get, uh, get to have, you know, because we want to make sure we had good discussion with all of our members and understand what we're, what we're getting into. Uh, but we looked at the benefits too, because for example, when we were building our golf course, in order to build our golf course uh, under the Indian Act, we had to designate the lands for economic development. Then we had to uh, do a, a, you know, a, do a, a land surrender. surrender. Then we had, yeah, and then we had to get the minister to sign off on the lease. And that was like a three-year process just to make that happen. And under the land code, though, uh, now that we have one in place, uh, we have our own set of land laws. And uh, we, like I said, we've gone through land use, planning, zoning, development standards, and all of that was all with the community. You know, so if you come through, come in our community, you'll see that uh, even all of the economic activity, it's all in the north end of the community. And we still have like all of our residential, so our community can still have their, you know, their regular regular res way of life, and uh, and and, and uh, still, you know, do do if those that want to hunt and gather and just still practice on more traditional ways we can do that and then but we still have access to economic activity um and so uh the land code is uh, has enabled us to move at the speed of business and i'll give you an example um the city of saskatoon uh, our 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 tribal council was looking at uh building um a casino in downtown saskatoon and uh <clears throat> We were plan B, Whitecap was plan B. And then they had a plebiscite and 55% of the citizens said no. So all of a sudden we become plan A. And we were very fortunate. We already had our land code in place. So we didn't have to go through the process of getting the minister to sign off on a lease. We can actually just go ahead and, and uh, enter into a lease agreement with the Saskatoon Tribal Council. And of course, the Saskatchewan Gaming Authority is the manage, manager of the casinos. Uh, but we, were, we could just move that forward. So we did. And uh, of course, uh, there's other things that come with it though. Once you have, uh, you have your own land, code uh, and you have the ability to do zoning and we we can uh, issue a, uh, we can issue up to like on, a, on the commercial side we can do up to a 99 year lease but like for the casino they only wanted a 27 year lease so that was fine it's but we can go up to 99 same thing on the residential we can go up to 99 residential leasehold interest and and we had to amend our land code a couple more times just so that the the banks are comfortable in regards to if there was ever foreclosure or needs to be, it has to be market driven. The, the business, the business or the residence has to be open to the market. So, so we amended those uh, for the, for the financial institutions. And so we've now had uh, uh, Peace Hills Trust, Affinity Credit Union, First Nations Bank, Bank of Montreal, they all done, they all do business on our lands. And so they, and they understand that, you know, all of these uh, leasehold interests are legally surveyed, they're registered. And sometimes you got to kind of compare it to, whether it be national parks, like, like, you know, like we're, we're Banff, uh, people don't actually own the land, but they have the long-term leasehold interest and they, right. and they, and they can be on those lands. They can, and they can go to the the banks for, for uh, financing and et cetera. So, so the, the system does work and, you know, it's worked certainly um, in the UK for centuries, you know, where a lot of individuals actually own the land and they turn around, they lease out, lease it out. So, 
so we have that mechanism on our community. Um, but the other thing we have to look at is an infrastructure capacity because you can have legislative capacity, lease lands, but you also have to have uh, infrastructure capacity as well to attract that business to the lands. And so we had to make those strategic investments in infrastructures to expand, um, uh, to build a commercial water and sewer plant, uh, to look at paved roads and street lighting, um, uh, telecommunications, uh, fiber for high speed and three-phase power, uh, natural gas capacity, all that investment had to happen. So we made those investments. Um, and, the, on the, and this was after the, when the casino was first coming to our community. But then going forward, as we continue to, to, you know, to open our doors for business and create more economic activity, such as we're looking at uh, building a hotel and a spa and a resort residential community. But again, we need to expand our infrastructure capacity. And uh, the, inf the Investing in Canada infrastructure program wasn't open to First Nations uh, about six years ago. It was uh, only open to cities and towns and rural municipalities. And so I approached the, uh, the premier of province at the time, Brad Wall, and, uh, and I told him, I said, we want to access that program. And how the program worked back then was uh, for infrastructure expansion. It was uh, one-third from the province, one-third from the feds, and one-third from the local jurisdiction. And I told uh, the premier, I said, well, Whitecap will put up our one-third like any other jurisdiction. And uh, so, uh, so he agreed, and uh, we, uh, he assigned it to his minister responsible at the time, which was Jim Ryder, and we jointly lobbied the federal government. And finally, in, the, we, in 2017, I believe it was, we finally uh, got approval for, for, for our infrastructure project through that uh, Investing in Canada infrastructure program. And now that program is open to all first stations across the country. So it goes hand in hand with the, with the framework agreement that, you, yes, you need legislative capacity to open your doors for business, but you also need infrastructure capacity as well. So the land code has really given you a lot of creativity and flexibility? Absolutely. If it wasn't for the land code, uh, a lot of these things wouldn't happen today. And I think the biggest thing is uh, that we can move at the speed of business. We no longer have to wait for the minister to sign off on our leases. And uh, and the thing is, it's the nation. Uh, you know, we're the ones making our decisions. And that's where the decision should lie. The The whole Indian Act was, uh, was very, very paternal. And, you know, it's basically, you, you know, that the, the federal government... Uh, the federal government ha had to make decisions for us. And that's not the case, you know, uh, as, as indigenous people and as more of our people get, get educated, uh, we, we were building more capacity in our community. Austin Bear was telling me the story similar to that. His dad uh, left him a little tin box when he passed. And in that box was a collection of Indian agent permits, which his dad had to get before he could leave Muscaday to sell his farm products to support his family. And that emotional connection has stayed with Austin. And I guess it's probably the same for you. Well, absolutely. When you can see how our, our First Nations people were treated and they, like uh, when it came to, uh, to to be a part of the economy, we weren't allowed to be a part of the economy. And anytime our nation succeeded, uh, government stepped in to try and uh, to take it away. For example, uh, our community used to access about 10.5 sections of land adjacent to our community that's now uh, uh, under the Department of National Defense. They now have that land. But uh, we had a, a, a cattle uh, operation where we were about three head of cattle and then those lands were taken from us and then 
then, of course, that was the end of the cattle operation. So that was a big impact to our community. That was uh, in the early 1900s. So anytime there's uh, success being shown by a First Nation or if you're outproducing the, the local ranchers or the local farmers, uh, and then the federal government seems to want to step in and say, how can we take that away? How can we suppress them? Because we need to make sure we have power over them. Because if they if they start being successful, then we no longer have our authority and our power over the, over that community. So uh, it's very sad and disheartening that our ancestors are you know, like my grandfather and and even those before him had to endure this whole Indian act and uh, but now as a as a is a, a younger generation and looking at all the wrongs and trying to find solutions and uh, that's the other thing the federal government never once came to Whitecap and said by the way we have a solution for you chief Here's what you need to do. You need to sign the framework agreement. You need to create your own land code. You need to look at land use planning, zoning, development standards. You got to look at infrastructure uh, capacity, and you can and then start looking at the real property tax regime so you can maintain the infrastructure that you've invested in and provide service back to those businesses. And you can create employment for your people, and you can start generating your own revenue, and you can start creating your own priorities within your community with the revenues that you generated. They never once came and said that. This is, these are things we as First Nations, you know, it stems from leadership and having the support of our community. And as leaders, we surround ourselves with also with capacity, with good, 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 good executive team, but also good employees. And that uh, resonates back to jobs for our own people and continuing to build capacity for our people through education and promoting education. Like, so now we've done some other things like we've invested in an early learning center. And so it's not just a daycare, it's about literacy and it's about language and culture, but literacy correlates with retention. When children learn to read at an early age, they stay in school, they finish to grade 12. And we've also, because we generate our own source revenues, you know, like the post-secondary program, the federal government has a cap on that program. So basically students then have to be on a wait list. So we don't have our students on a wait list. We go ahead and fund them with our own source revenue, you know, so that our students are not sitting idly because you don't want them to sit idle. You want them to go ahead and move forward on a good path because when you have idle time, sometimes you can go down the wrong pathway and we don't want to see that happen. So we make sure we make those investments. Now, what about right at the grassroots? Like if you have a community member who wants to start a business and, you know, typically probably can't offer up a home, right? Or any other equity to act as collateral. Is that the case? It's a big challenge as well. It's not just for, like I said, it's not just for the First Nations. It's for the individual entrepreneurs as well. You know, they can't they can't go and, and, and like I said, leverage a real estate property that was uh, willed on from generation to generation. You know, they have to basically look, look, look at how can I actually get my, you know, once I have a business plan and, I'm, and I have to look at raising capital, what is, what programs are available to me? Uh, how can I get this business going? But also just understanding what business is all about, because when you have a business you're you're actually the last one that gets paid you got to make sure that you you pay all your bills you pay all your employees and you move and you and you move forward and also making sure you understand all the all, all the aspects of business you know there's the there's the, going to be the whole finan- the financial literacy the the marketing side of things you know uh, even just the, the public relations that you have to do and, and sometimes you got to understand that you can't you don't have to be a wizard all these things you can actually go and contract some of those services from to for your bookkeeping and things like that making sure all your CRA payments are being made for your employees and all because we see uh, sadly we see some of our 
our First Nations that they get into that kind of trouble where they start a business yeah. that's going really well, but the, the problem is perhaps it's it's just on the on the on the accounting side, but they could be really good business people. Just not everybody's on knows all the finances, knows all the CRA rules, et cetera, but making sure that they cover that yeah. off. And so so we're actually working now to to develop some of those entrepreneurial programs uh, so our members understand what is what is it what does it take to get into business? What do you need? Uh, how can you actually even right now if there's actually where you have boomers that uh, their children don't want to be part of their business, but they have some really good businesses and you have a young indigenous population that wants to get into business. So how can you bring these two together? Right. So, yeah. so there's, I think there's some great opportunity that, uh, that can happen. If I could circle back to the, uh, you know, the investments, the capital investments you've made now totaling 150 million. What amazes me is that I saw a quote from you where you said, we've come from nowhere. There was a time when there wasn't a dime in the bank account. It's a true story. We, when I was first elected, we didn't have one dime in our bank account. We actually had an overdraft. We had a stack of payables. Uh, we, we basically owed a lot of organizations money uh, and we had no plan in place. And we were actually giving out loans and advances to our membership. And we're not a bank. Why are we, why are we in that business? So I remember uh, the first thing we had to do was ascertain the size of our deficit, uh, create a financial management plan, and, uh, and then we had to take that financial management plan to a financial institution and get uh, and and, and uh, consolidate all the debt and stick to the plan. But also we had to make some tough decisions. But we we made sure we did it with the community. We told the community the situation that our nation is in, and we have to take these steps in order to to strengthen our community going forward, and uh, and also. So we have to get out of the business of loans and advances to members because we are not a bank. You know, if you want a loan, you want an advance, you, you, you go get a credit card or you go get a loan from a bank. The nation can't be in that business. That's not our, that's not what we're here to do. We're here to provide services and improve the quality of life for our, for our, our people. And that's the role we need to do. And we also have to create a, a governance and policy so that uh, they're consistent and it's fair. And so it was a lot of work, but then it's taken a lot of time. Like I said, like uh, I'm in my 30th year right now of leadership here in my community. Uh, three years uh, was a, as a counselor and my 27th year as chief right now. So it's, uh, it's been a long road, but we've always made sure that we've, uh, consulted with our members all the way through that was very important to us is communication and making sure even on new ventures uh, uh new business opportunities making sure they understand what what, what are we what are we pursuing what, what is the impact to the community are you in favor or are you not in favor so uh having that dialogue is very important yeah what i find interesting as a, a non-indigenous person who works with Mi'kmaq communities out here is that when i learned about land code it's an amazing movement, I guess, that's building momentum across the country. And most non-Indigenous people probably have no idea it's even happening. Yeah. And yet it's growing and communities are turning around and doing some amazing things. And here you're now celebrating the 25th anniversary of the framework agreement. And I wonder, as you look back over that period of time, are you able to put that in perspective and to see where it's taken you? Yeah, like uh, we weren't the, one of the original signatories to the agreement on the, on the 25 year anniversary, but certainly as a young leader, I was, uh, you know, Chief Austin Bear and uh, we're part of the same tribal council, Sastoon Tribal Council. So 
I was a young chief back then and uh, certainly very interested in what Austin was doing. Eventually, I got the opportunity to meet with uh, Rob Louie, who was, uh, who was the chief of West Bank, and, and to go and visit his community and look at what they were doing in regards to economic development. Uh, I'm always a strong believer in uh, not reinventing the wheel. If there's uh, somebody else has a best practice and you just bring that best practice home, you tweak it to fit your community because every community has different dynamics and different, um, you know, the politics are a little different. And so you got to bring it home to your community, you have the dialogue with your membership and you, and you tweak it to fit your community. And so it's, uh, it was uh, like to see the work that, you know, like the Rob and uh, Austin did, you know, definitely there was criticism, people that didn't understand what they were doing back then. See, you know, like there was a lot of talk, oh, you're, 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 you know, you're selling out and all these things. And that was not the story at all. The story was about sectorial self-government. It's about taking control of your lands and, uh, and, 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 and opening your doors for economic activity uh, and, and creating opportunity for your people. And uh, that's what the land code is all about. It's, it's about creating that opportunity. And, and like I said, it, it's now impacted not just the land development, but it's impacted so much of so many of our programs that we have to offer here in our community because we have so many different revenue streams to date. And we wouldn't have all these additional revenue streams if we didn't have this uh, this ability to have sectoral self-government and start, and start um, to, uh, I guess, taking control of, of, of the governance of our lands. And that's that was a very important step for us. Yeah. How important is your location? Uh, because you're, if I remember right, you're I mean, you're right between the South Saskatchewan River and and the main highway between Saskatoon down to Regina. It would seem that you're in a prime spot to to do something. Well, the thing, is, the thing is, let's put it this way: we we were here long before there was a city of Saskatoon. Okay, so so in 1882, John Lake came to this area from from Eastern Canada, looking for a place to put his to temperance colony, administrative center. He sought out the, the advice of Chief Whitecap, and Chief Whitecap picked him out a location on the banks of the South Saskatchewan, where the settlers could easily cross. And then, of course, there's the city. It took the city 125 years before they finally acknowledged uh, Chief Whitecap as one of the founding fathers. They recognized John Lake, but they never recognized Chief Whitecap. So finally, now we have a statue, downtown Saskatoon, twice the size of life of John Lake and Chief Whitecap as the founding fathers. And, and, but we, it, it, was, it took the First Nation to bring that story alive and remind, you know, the Saskatoon that there is a rich history here and we need to acknowledge that history, you know, that uh, the First Nations were always here to help the settlers and uh, and that's what Chief Whitecap did, you know, he, he, he assisted uh, and even during the, the real resistance, he was there again to make sure that, uh, that the Saskatoon, the, they, they passed by peacefully. And again, the city recognized him with a park in his honor, Chief Whitecap Park that's on the, along the banks of the South Saskatchewan. Wow. Uh, so uh, as far as location goes, like we were here for well over a hundred years without any kind of activity at all, you know? So, but when I was elected, it was about looking at, okay, what, how do we, how do we go forward? And like I said, the first thing we had to do is get our financial house in order. But after that, we had to start looking at community infrastructure, such as a, a new school, a water treatment plant, you know, a, a health center. And then when we started looking at economic development, we seen the framework agreement, and then that piqued our interest to say, this is what we need. You know, our, like our, our like our golf course when we first built it, we had to go through the Indian Act and do the whole land designation and surrender and get the minister to sign the lease. It took us three years. We finally got that to happen, and then we built our golf course but once we had our land code it was just it's just no stopping us now just moving forward you know the speed of business i'll give you another example of uh, of, of alliances and working together because 
when when first when we first started looking at opportunity for for whitecap i looked at the 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 past of our of our of our, of our uh, leadership from the past and what they practiced and one of the things is for dakota people was always building alliances and even the word dakota means ally and so we're stronger when we work with others you know like even even before europeans arrived you know having say treaty relationships with other first nation groups you know so that we can they can come into our territory hunt and gather we can go in their territory hunt and gather or military alliance or trade alliances peace peace alliances all these things happened back in the day so so as far as going forward, we looked at the whole thing about alliances, building those alliances and going forward. So once we got, got we we're going to get the casino in our community, we knew that the highway had to be upgraded, but we couldn't go to the province and say, can you improve the highway from Saskatoon to Whitecap? It would never fly. So what we did though, it's, we said, we need to build a tourism corridor that goes from Saskatoon out to Lake Diefenbaker. And Lake Diefenbaker is 45 minutes away. We need to build a tourism corridor. We need to get the city of Saskatoon on board. We need to get the Arma Corman Park, the Arma Dundurn, the Arma Rudy, the Arma Rosedale, the town of Outlook, the town of Dundurn, and Whitecap. And we all got to come together and we're going to sign this MOA that we're going to work together and get all the rights away on this, on this, on this tourism corridor. And we're going to all approach the province to put money into this tourism corridor. And we did that. And it was so difficult for the province to say no. You got four RMs, two towns and a First Nation collectively coming together, wanting to build this tourism corridor. So out of the five phases built to date from, from uh, uh, Saskatoon to the Highway 15 junction, uh, it was 40, $45 million. And Whitecap actually managed three of those five phases. And then uh, now the other two phases are going forward in, into Lake Diefenbaker. But what it, what it did, though, then all of a sudden all of our partners on the, on the tourism corridor wanted to brand it and they wanted to call it Chief Whitecap Trail. We didn't object to that. So the first time in the province's history, a highway is named after a chief. But that's what I'm saying. It's, it's about the alliances. It's about looking at the past and how our ancestors, how they work and bringing some of their practices forward to modern day and applying those principles. And uh, that's what we've done. And uh, it's worked for us. That's amazing. I, uh, I wish we had more time to get into the history of uh, Whitecap Dakota and uh, how you're not part of the Treaty 6 territory and the whole border thing and the War of 1812, but uh, that's probably a good book someday. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, uh, g g sadly, the government took the view that we were American Indians, yet if you look at the history of the Whitecap Dakota First yeah. Nation, you know, British allies uh, during the Pontiac War, the American Revolution, uh, the War of 1812 helped make Canada a nation. And then that's as far as the treaty making process, you had to be a British Indian. Well, how much more of a British Indian are you when we have past chiefs who are generals and captains in the British Army? So it's a crazy, crazy. story. Chief, for those who might want to get in touch with you or find out more about uh, your community, where would you point them to? Well, there's always our website, right? So you can uh, go to our website uh, or certainly uh, call our call our office uh, and uh, they'll, uh, they'll, they'll get you connected. This has been great. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Chief. Okay, thank you and uh, have a good weekend and keep safe. Join us in the coming weeks as we explore the land code in more detail and the personal journeys of leaders involved in the process. You can visit the website at labrc.com for a wealth of information and you can follow the Resource Center on Facebook. You can also subscribe to this podcast on all the major platforms. And we'd really appreciate it if you could help get the word out by just telling one colleague about the show. I'm Richard Perry. Thanks for listening.